Incomparable. Number 203, July 2014. Welcome back to the Incomparable Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Snell. Uh, in November of last year, we spent some time talking about Doctor Who on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. And it's a show that I love. I love the old series when I was in uh, in high school and I uh, love the new series now. And we got a great reaction from it. Uh, and a lot of people were talking about uh, uh, where you should get started if you're new to Doctor Who and also just uh, were interested in us talking more about it. And while the Incomparable is not a Doctor Who podcast, we do talk about it. We've done our flashcasts about uh, the new series as, as the episodes have aired. And in the interim, because the new series isn't coming back for another uh, month and a half or so as we record this, I thought it would be a good time to talk about Doctor Who a little more. So we're going to talk about where to get started with Doctor Who. And we're also going to talk about the Russell T. Davis era, which is the uh, 2005 to 2010, but only if you count New Year's Day of 2010 uh, era of the show. So roughly... We'll, we'll say five years, the first five years of the of the relaunch of the series. Joining me are actually, I believe, our, our same panel of Doctor Who experts slash fans slash people uh, that we had in November for the 50th anniversary episode. Uh, We're caught in the time loop. That's right. That voice you just heard. It's Chip Sutterth, the host of the Two Minute Time Lord podcast and co-host of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. Hi, Chip. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back. I enjoy it. It's good to have you here. We'll go for longer than two minutes again. So, you know, again, you get to spread your wings. Don't talk so fast. Slow it down a little. And it's okay. (laughs) Working with Erica on the B5 podcast, I am flexing my muscles. I'm exercising. I'm hydrating. I'm ready to talk. Yeah, that, that podcast can often be, you know, four, five, seven minutes long. Uh, or or longer, uh, Erica Ensign. You mentioned you mentioned her, and she is also here because again, uh, Babylon Five podcast. The, she's with you and your wife Shannon on the Audio Guide to Babylon Five, but also uh, one of the hosts of of the Hugo nominated Verity podcast, which is a Doctor Who podcast. Hello, hello. I'm, I'm I'm plugging everything tonight. Apparently, no, that's awesome. I just I still it still makes me like just shake my head a little bit when you say Hugo nominated. I know. I'm just going to keep saying it. I am honored, and it's awesome, but it still makes me feel weird. Yeah. I, at least I didn't say her, her likeness is not in Paul Cornell's Hugo-nominated comic book. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> this is also true. And, and that laughter you hear, you know him, you love him, you can't live without him. And if you follow him on Twitter, you can't live with him. It's Glenn Fleischman. Hi. <laughs> this is an excellent introduction. Do we get theme music, too? I, I feel know. like there should be theme music. Man, I just had like a giant glass of uh, sugar before we got on the air, so <laughs> I'm ready to go. I can tell. Well, I'm I'm happy to be here. Yeah, just to, how, how do you get how do you get pumped up for the Doctor Who episode? So, um, so let's get started by talking about where where people should get started because I think that's a good way in. Um, and then if people haven't watched the uh, Russell T Davis era yet, they can they can um, uh, tune out and if they want to and and come back to that part of the conversation later. But it was definitely something I heard over and over again in November when everybody was talking about the 50th and when our episode posted that a lot of people who are sort of casual sci-fi fans and don't have heard about it and and something we that Glenn mentioned before we got started, the intimidation of 50 years of history and thinking, oh how do I get caught up in all this continuity and what should I learn and are there episodes I should use? Sort of putting a modern TV series question on something like Doctor Who that I think you just can't – you can't compare it. This is not the kind of thing that you must go back to episode one and of of, of 1964 and or, or 1963 and go from there. It's it's you can't do it. So I, I'm curious 
Um, I wrote a thing on the internet about this too, um, but you know, there was no right answer. I'm just curious in your past or what you would do now if somebody came up to you and said, how do I get started with Dr. Who? You know, what would be your prescription if it's somebody who's like, just they're curious and they're interested and you want to share your love of the show, but they just don't know where to start. Chip, what do you think? I think that paradoxically, because we're getting ready to talk about the Russell T. Davis era, which is my favorite era. I'd have to say that the best jumping on point is the episode that said goodbye to the Russell T. Davis era, and that's The Eleventh Hour, a show run by the current uh, producer, Stephen Moffat. It uh, gives you a bit of the history, but it's a fantastic standalone, all-in-one episode that introduces a new doctor, introduces a whole new status quo, which means that it's a perfect jumping on point with no baggage to deal with really it's interesting i made i made a reference to that in the in the the blog post that i wrote and people i had some people who were like what are you crazy and i actually hadn't meant to recommend it i i I, that wasn't my recommendation i just said it was a possible starting off point but um i do wonder because that was from 2010 i do wonder as time goes on if that is going to be more of a consensus jumping on point only because it won't seem you know, it won't seem as old. It is five years newer in terms of the look and the special effects and all of that. And I worry if you're introducing somebody to the show that if you make them go too far back, they might even get turned off by things feeling dated. I'm not sure 2005 feels dated that much at this point, but there's going to be a time. If not now, there's going to be a time. And the 11th hour has some baggage with it, but it is um, – it also has a lot going for it. I have – um, I have two words for you uh, about whether the 2005 uh, first episode feels dated. Garbage bin. Yeah, one additional word: burp. <laughs> yeah, you know that was, but that was that was bad then. <laughs> I mean, this that's the difference between something that's dated and something that's. I mean, yeah, I, we're, and we're going to talk about the RTD era in general here too. But that that's there is. There's some weird tone. They, they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't even know how to make that show when they made those episodes. And you can see it. It's all over the place. And looking back, you can see all the good in it. But it's certainly not of the level of quality and consistency that you get with something like The 11th Hour at the start of the Stephen Moffat era, where it is – it's in HD – the effects are, are are great. It is beautifully shot. The cinematography, the shows never look better. And it's got a new doctor and a new companion, so there's no baggage or history. So it's not as if there was a crossover companion from the like uh, with David Tennant's first episode. It's 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 a clean slate, and uh, and I think the evidence in the, in the growing fandom in the U.S. to Matt Smith uh, suggests that a lot of people kind of discovered it when it went to BBC America and uh, Matt Smith came on board. So I think a lot of people have used that as a jumping off point. You know, it's not even just a clean slate as far as the Doctor and the Companion, but behind the scenes, it's practically a clean slate as well. You have not only the showrunner changing over with Matt Smith, but a lot of the other producers and and folks behind the scenes. So um, just as has happened many times in the past in Doctor Who, you really are starting over a little bit, still the same character, but it's not the same character. And I think that 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 is one of the best places to jump on. It is. And that is also one of the biggest challenges in getting somebody into the show is that Doctor Who has been so many shows over the years. It's really hard to get a uh, modern day new viewer to give the classic series a try. It's so hard to get people to give any classic series a try uh, when you've got modern show 
as a, as a different example, as, as a different option, you've got the modern show that's filmed in widescreen and has decent special effects and all that. Um, so Doctor Who is all kinds of different shows. Where to start? I would say start as early as you can with something that resembles what's on TV now. And for me, that's the 11th hour. Well, I would take a different stance just so that I am not saying the same thing as everyone else. I have more mixed feelings about the Matt Smith era. I was not as big a Matt Smith fan, although I really liked him in a lot of episodes. I felt like the writing has been more uneven um, in the uh, Moffat era. Uh, and I feel like – so there's some episodes that feel like a total wash to me. And so uh, my dubiousness about getting people to start with 11th Hour, although I agree with everything all three of you say about that, um, it's a different era. I feel like if we're talking about – and you know, we're sort of in the Russell – we're, we're not talking about Russell Davis exactly right now. But I think if you want to say why did this – garner so much interest that it then exploded and continued to grow into what was the Matt Smith era, I would say, let me be um, provocative and say Christmas Invasion. All right. Because it's a little bit of a break. So I, I I love Chris Eccleston. I think he did a fantastic – he totally reinterpreted what the Doctor was about while remaining entirely in the tradition of it. And, and we talked about that I think a year ago. But like that maniacal smile he had come up with, which was so <laughs> Tom Baker. It was it was like a great homage to it, but it was his own thing. And uh, so I thought Chris Eccleston did an amazing job. And I loved many of his episodes are, are, are terrific. They're not all my favorites, but like the whole Bad Wolf arc and um, The Return of the Doctor. So, but that said, I think uh, David Tennant was more approachable and reachable, and I think the stories had started to get more sophisticated. And if someone started with Christmas Invasion and then eventually circled back to Eccleston, they get Christmas Invasion, then they go to New Earth, which is an interesting, bizarre, I mean, you know, plot holes aside, let's just say, which you have to say with Doctor Who, we don't have to worry about some of the plot issues, but that New Earth calls back, but it's also great. Tooth and Claw is kind of all over the place. I don't know what you're talking about, Glenn. When I get a horrible infection, I hope that people spread a colorful liquid on me to, to cure it. I don't know what you're talking about. It's true. It's true. That's I'd like to be locked up in cells and cured and, sure. and killed over and over again. Uh, but then you get a school reunion, which we get Sarah Jane back. So anyone who knew about the old series, but there's, it's hinted enough, we get Mickey back and we sort of get Mickey integrated. We get Girl in the Fireplace and the Cybermen. And then I think, you know, this season goes on and I think it's a very strong season. So if you're trying to tell somebody what the scope of the Davis era and the sort of new thing is about, I think this tells a lot of stories and girl in the fireplace, of course, I think it's one of the best episodes of the modern, um, modern run. So, uh, and, and I like some of the others quite a bit. Wow. My eyes just rolled into the back of my head there. You don't like girl in the fireplace? <laughs> no. Well, as, as we revealed in, in, in the episode in November, that is one of my very, very favorite new series episodes, but you know, Dr. Who is an amazing, uh, yeah, we we're also diametrically opposed on orphan black episodes. So, you know, it happens. Different strokes, but this is good. We give people multiple entrance points to it. So I wanted to jump on that just for a second to say, I think it's, I think it's not a bad idea. I think, um, I think it's a less bumpy ride than the than the the Christopher Eccleston season. There's a moment in Tooth and Claw. New Earth is is a strange episode. There's a moment in Tooth and Claw where I turned to my wife while we were watching and I said, "Oh, they figured out how to do this show." Cuz like I said the first season was kind of in and out and strange, and in Tooth and Claw I'm like, "Oh, they got it. They are confident and they 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 you know, it's working. Too confident. They figured it out." And yeah, well that's the argument, right? But it's like competently produced they they kind of know what tone they're going for um 
it, it's not as shaky a season as the first season is, I think. But it's still got some issues. It just doesn't have farting aliens. That that's for me. That's the big problem. Is that although I think you should start with Rose, I think that is the the should be the right answer. But the problem is, unless you are reaching somebody who's really committed to this, if they're just curious, I worry about turning them out on Rose because they're going to get to farting aliens really fast, and and then they've got the long game. I mean, there there's a there's a run of weak weak episodes before it kind of picks up at the end. My doctor is David Tennant. I mean, Tom Baker and David Tennant are my two doctors. So uh, that reveals my bias, which is why I would say uh, part of why I give that entry point, even though I love Eccleston and I, I think Matt Smith is great. As I said, scripting aside, like I don't say don't watch the Matt Smith episodes or whatever, but it's you have to be, I think as Jason's saying, much more committed to the series before you go back and watch Eccleston because you'll watch it with the more uh, jaundiced eye. And then the Smith series, starting with that, are so different in in appearance that they could make everything before it seemed really 1980s-ish almost. Yeah, but there's so much content after that. Uh, you know, if you if you start them with Matt Smith, there's lots and lots of Matt Smith episodes to go. I think it's dangerous to sort of try to come up with a one-size-fits-all entry point. I think if it's, say, a co-worker or an acquaintance you don't know very well, then maybe the 11th hour is, is the, the, the smartest one to go with. But if it's somebody that you actually kind of know a little bit, take into account what their personality is like. Are they the kind of a nerd that is willing to commit and will actually sit through the stuff that you see in the first season, first series? Uh, because in that case, I think Rose is a, a good place to jump in. Uh, but if it's somebody who really wants to be on the train right away and be able to watch the new episodes as they come out. I mean, like you said, we're only about a month and a half away from the new season starting. And if it's somebody that's going to want to be caught up, maybe just tell them to wait and just start right now because there is no bad place to start with Doctor Who, I don't think. I mean, I, I know people who have started in all kinds of crazy ways and have become really huge fans. Well, the first episode I saw was The Power of Kroll, and I'm still here, so... <laughs> I know a number of people on Twitter have said they started with Rose. They said, all right, I'm going to binge watch this. I started with Rose, and then I stopped. And I'm like, oh, like, it's not that Rose is a terrible episode. It's got a lot of great stuff in it. And, you know, the vulnerability and strength that Billy Piper has, I think, is shown in that first episode. Eccleston's sort of... Like he's defined the character in that episode, even if the show is still clunky. Um, I think it's a great defining episode. But if people are saying I watched Rose and then I stopped like, oh, OK, that's if you, if you give up there, you're way too early. There's, you know, now eight years, nine years beyond that, uh, much of which is is better than that episode. Even the same season, you're going to find stuff better than that episode. Yeah. If you're really invested in being on board right away, but you don't want to just jump in, I would suggest starting with the uh, probably the, the Clara episodes. So maybe, you know, the, the snowman or something like that. My, that's where my sister started, actually, with the snowman. And she enjoyed it so much that she went all the way back to Rose and is almost all the way wrapped around and caught up and she plans to be all the way through the rest of the Matt Smith ones she hadn't seen by the time the new one starts with Peter Capaldi and that that brought her in that's a nice that's a nice approach I tried to evangelize my brother on this thing I talked about it on my <laughs> podcast two minute time Lord 336 and um, the problem was that here I am saying that this is a fantastic show you should watch it and the universal truth of brothers is if you like something, your brother is predisposed to hate it. So I kept – I tried Rose and he was it, it, the the burping trash bin. That was it. Yeah. Um, uh, I tried Blink and you know you're in trouble when the objection to the episode is it's just people running and being chased by 
creature things by by hokey creature things which is the which is in doctor who's dna <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. There, is, does this show have lots of running and aliens well <laughs> i do like that they that they ran i like that they ran with it sorry in the modern series that there's just that joke about what did you say i said run. what did he say to you he said run what's he say run, run run okay all right well now we're just saying it we're just gonna say it we're not gonna be coy this is what the show is about the one episode that finally seemed to stick with him was the doctor's wife but that is a horrible episode for showing to somebody that you haven't already tried to get them in uh, with a few episodes beforehand it requires a bit of appreciation for the series in the first place. So this was going to be one of my questions is the approach of trying to p- cherry pick episodes versus trying to just say, look, start here and, and, and binge watch, which we can do now. And, and if, if, if you're not holding their hand and saying, all right, we're going to watch this one together and I'm going to ask you questions afterward and then we'll see where we go from here, which you could do if you're prescribed like you, you did with your brother, which is we're just going to watch Blink. And I've heard a lot of people say I would show people. I would show people Blink, which I find strange because although I do love that episode, I think it's a great episode. It's also so not a Doctor Who episode in so many ways. It's so so off format from the series that I'm not sure what it proves other than that it's a weird time travel show. <laughs> I, I wrote a blog post on this once myself uh, just about how it really is an excellent example of writing and it grabs you and it just it shows you you know what the show can do if you – let the person know at the outset that it's kind of an outlier. Um, I, I think at the end of it, most of the people I've shown it to have been so excited that they were like, this is awesome. I, I want to see more. And then they're willing to buy in and willing to put up with the burping trash bins and the farting aliens because they know there's something like this on the other end. <laughs> Lots of body functions I forgot about in Doctor Who, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I wonder, actually, come to think of it, if Smith and Jones, the third season opener, yeah. isn't a bad, uh, isn't a bad uh, opening gambit in terms of mm. it, it's, it's self-contained. It introduces a new companion, which means that it has to introduce the Doctor. And it's it's got good characters. It's got some goofy high concept stuff like a hospital on the moon. I love the creepy, creepy alien. She's great. Joe, row, bow, 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 No, I know. I just I'm just doing some jadoon because I can. <laughs> yeah, the lady with the straw. The old lady with the straw. She was great. I mean, it was. Oh, my my son still talks about her. That actress was just on TV when we were flipping through the channels. <laughs> oh my god! It's just the banal is the thing that is most terrifying. The banal. It's like old women and guys in motorcycle outfits, and they grab you and suck your blood. It's like, oh, that's much worse than. <laughs> You know, creepy aliens. Yeah, check out Last Tango in Halifax if you want to see what she's doing now. Ooh, she's she's great. One of the reasons that I'm suggesting that is that it's got it, it's sort of proto Doctor Who, and if and the person watching it is going to know if the rest of the show is for them or not because they can either deal with a hospital on the moon or they can't. <laughs> Right. And it, it's it's I mean, it's constructed as I mean, I think Russell T. Davis gave a lot of thought to these introductory episodes and, and viewed them as being landing points, starting off points for, for new viewers. And um, actually, one of the nice things about Smith and Jones, too, is that the the time travel element doesn't isn't there to complicate things. In fact, it's only there in a gag, which is a smart gag because it shows that he it does have a time machine, but it's not the point of the episode. It doesn't get all twisted around. It's just he goes back and takes off his tie and and proves that he has a time machine. And and so it doesn't over it doesn't throw too much in the bin. It's like a little wild adventure where she Martha proves her worth and you know, the doctor saves the day and there's some weird aliens and you don't need to know any continuity. And that's it. 
That's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, I can see that because it's also Martha is a very different, you know, Martha as a character. I, I, I never fell in love with Martha, but I appreciated her and I appreciated when she came back as well um, because she's that she's a professional. She's very different. She's at a firm point in her life. She's a do- or about to become a doctor and then becomes a doctor. And um, her expertise is useful. And also her, you know, she's much more of an immediate equal, especially in the modern series. And so, uh, for people who are thinking, oh, this is about uh, pretty women who are helpless, which the show isn't about anyway, but it has that perception of it. He finds this young woman like Rose. The bit, one of the best lines in the whole reboot is when Sarah Jane in uh, in school reunion when she says uh, when she says, oh, you know, you know, you keep getting younger, and so do they, or something like him or the exact line, right? And it's like, oh, what a burn! It's true, <laughs> and she's got no woo, and you're like, and that, and and that's realized like what the show's demographics are about, how television's changed. Too so uh, so yeah I think uh, I think Doctor Smith is a good place to uh, to come in. Are there are there other individual episodes? Would you cherry pick or would you just go for? Would you go for uh, you know you need to really watch this and take the ride and watch a season because it's really hard because all these seasons I can look at the lists here and think oh man you know yeah that that's uh, we'll start with the Christmas invasion but boy that Cyberman two parter is really not good or I look at the Martha season I think oh the Dalek two part those two parters in the middle boy oh that's rough stuff right so you can't you can't unless you're making a playlist for them literally you got to either choose to expose them to, to some good episodes or just chuck them in at a starting point and say write it out. You know, there's going to be good and bad. It's a TV show. It's got good and bad. But I'm just wondering about the idea, the intelligence of uh, of the strategy of, of cherry picking and saying, why don't you watch Blink? Why don't you watch uh, The Girl in the Fireplace, except not Erica? Why, you know, why, don't, why don't you watch, I, I don't know, uh, uh, Father's Day? Planet of the Ood, I would call out. I know that's a weird one, but Planet of the Ood, it takes place somewhere else. They don't travel. I know it doesn't get the time, the you know, space and time thing as much, but it brings up uh, you know a lot of ethical issues. There's a giant throbbing brain. There's um, you know some like a mystery. There's things going totally awry. I mean, it's like it's a lot of people running around. That's always good, but it's um, uh, it's got a great sort of surprise reveal at the end, and it's even got. I mean, Catherine Tate, uh, uh, Donna has to. Um, confront the fact that there's all this suffering and the doctor sees it as his role to run towards suffering, to help those whatever. And when he gives her that telepathic link so that she can hear the Ood singing and she's like, I need to go home. I can't deal with this. And then the coming around by the end, she realizes how important it is and how she needs to be there. Like as a single episode, I don't know if you would know enough to watch it, but I think it's got a freestanding arc that doesn't involve say all the time Lords and the history and the time war. It's really about the Ood and, and uh, uh, empathy. Time to take a brief break to tell you about ourselves. We don't have a sponsor this week, so instead I want to tell you a little bit about what's going on in The Incomparable. First off, if you haven't listened to Random Trek, the new podcast hosted by our very own Scott McNulty, check it out, theincomparable.com slash randomtrek. We've got episodes up there with guests such as Moises Chuyan, Steve Lutz, John Moltz, Greg Noss, Dave Kahlo, Serenity Caldwell, Dan Morin, and me. Also, Total Party Kill, our Dungeons & Dragons podcast, is back for a new season. We've got a new cast of characters. That started a couple of weeks ago. If you'd like to listen to friends, play Dungeons & Dragons on the internet for your amusement. Theincomparable.com slash TPK for Total Party Kill. Lex Friedman and Dan Warren are still watching movies that they haven't seen before that are classics, yet they haven't seen them on Not Playing. You can get that at theincomparable.com slash not playing. And... That's about it for now. I only had one other note, which is some of you who subscribe to the 
incomparable plus After Dark feed on 5x5 may have discovered that you no longer have After Darks, or as we call them now, bonus tracks in your podcast feed. You got transferred to the wrong feed. If you go to the website, you can resubscribe via iTunes. There are a lot of ways to do it, but Incomparable Plus bonus track is available if you want to get back on the uh, crazy extras route in addition to the uh, regular episodes. And while you're there at theincomparable.com, check out our master feed. It's also on iTunes. That'll get you everything we do in one feed. Thanks for listening, and thanks to myself for sponsoring The Incomparable. Uh, before we we shift gears to talk about Russell T. Davis more specifically, I wanted to ask this question, which is, if somebody says, I'm, I've watched the new series and I like it, but I'm curious about the fact that it, I, there's still this history that I know nothing about before 2005, what should I, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued about going back behind that wall that behind which we don't speak of what is back there. What would you tell them? Where we, how would you point somebody at the classic series if they were in you know curious about about that and they know about the current series what what do you say ooh i have a perfect answer for this uh Actually, uh, a good friend of Chips and mine, Eric Stadnick, who is on the uh, Doctor Who The Writer's Room and Doctor Who Book Club podcasts, he wrote uh, back in 2012 uh, a blog post called An Open Letter. And it, it sort of aimed at, at new Doctor Who fans who are going to conventions for the first time and who want to be able to at least understand a little bit of the background of Doctor Who. And he uh, listed a bunch um, just in order of transmission. I can't remember exactly how many. It's some, something like a dozen um, maybe slightly more uh, episodes or, or stories from the classic series and reasons why they are sort of important within the canon of Doctor Who and slight descriptions of them. So I would point people at that and just say, you know, read through these, see which ones seem to strike your fancy and maybe try one of those because they really are a good selection of, of episodes that are, I don't know if important is exactly the right word, but they're ones that are well enough known that that they've, they've stuck in the, the Doctor Who consciousness over the years and are the kinds of things that you should be able to uh, that most classic fans will have have seen and remember enough to to converse with you about so that's where i would tell people to start yeah it's it, it really is sort of the canon in the proper sense like you know the the most important books out, out of the out of the whole library um that are the touch points you don't have to go to the power of kroll but <laughs> you do have to go to city of death um, that sort of thing. And it's also, you know, my go-to episode of classic Doctor Who is always Remembrance of the Daleks, which is a Sylvester McCoy episode, um, the first full episode uh, where uh, Sophie Aldred as Ace is the companion. I love that episode, but I love it kind of for the wrong reason, because it is one of the episodes that holds up the best as far as modern production styles and things like that. It's got the pacing and the humor and things like that. It feels it feels modern. And most of Doctor Who uh, from 1963 to 1989 is anything but modern. Um, so it's 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 hard. Uh, it's almost like you're you're taking these new fans who've watched the new show and then you're giving them a history project. And you can run in, you can run into the same problem with the classic series as you do with the new series. Like something like Blink is is kind of an outlier, but it's really good. A lot of people say with the classic series, start with something like The City of Death, which is total outlier. Yeah, you know, Douglas Adams. It's got John Cleese in it. Is you know in a cameo, and it maybe it's not exactly 
the most representative. No, it's it's kind of brilliant, but it is totally not a fit for the rest of the show. <laughs> and when you're looking at that many years, there's no such I mean, there's almost no such thing as something that is actually representative because it changed even more times than the new series has already. Yeah, City of Death, I I think about Pyramids of Mars is another one that I think of, which is a, I mean, nothing is representative, but it's it's pretty good even now. It's a lot of it's on film. It's kind of creepy. Um, but, it, uh, but the, the other problem is the format and people aren't used to watching these episodes that are, um, you know, or stories that are four twenty five or six twenty five minute long episodes and they, you know, they, they're long <laughs> and the pacing is weird <laughs> and it does not, uh, feel like a modern show cause it's very much not a modern show. And that can be, um, that can be a challenge for, for everybody. You know, and, and uh, related to that is possibly an even bigger challenge that both the classic and the modern series have is that they are targeted at a family audience. There are a lot of people of slightly advanced ages like ourselves who are into Doctor Who either because we discovered it when we were kids or we've just got that sort of childlike sense of wonder to borrow a Star <laughs> Trek line. Sorry, that's true. I, I still have my childlike sense of wonder. I, I, yeah, but um, and that was the big problem when I tried to sell my brother on it. He's into uh, he's into proper SF, and he watched a couple of these before I hit on the fact. Oh, right, that's right. This is family television. This is intended mm. to be suitable for adults and kids, and that's that is something really unique to British television. To um, it's not something that you see a whole lot of here, and people don't know how to handle it. <laughs> It's the panto tradition, right? It's like the, the that, that's for adults. I mean, it's for kids, but adults get into it, and when they grow up, they all go and they say, ah, no, well, you know, this chanting along and so forth. Well, there's just this concept, too, that the BBC is a public servant that is trying to reach all these different audiences, including something that the concept of tea time television, which, you know, in American TV, the, the junk that littered four o'clock, five o'clock television was, you know, it was syndicated, you know, old sitcoms and old reruns of Star Trek and things like that. It was a, it was not a place where you, crafted programming it was just kind of the junk that went on before you got to the real stuff in prime time and and the bbc had this commitment uh, historically to tea time programming for family and uh that's a very different thing than than in america i wanted to mention before we move on um graham burke and robert smith's book who's 50 which erica recommended uh i think maybe even back on that episode in november and i've read it and it is excellent the 50 doctor who stories you should watch before you die not a bad thing if you're really interested in exploring because it has some new series episodes and lots of old series episodes and they're not all the essays are great and it is also um funny because it is they're not all good they're just the ones you should see and that's interesting an interesting take too and they frequently disagree oh, yes. about the merits of those episodes. And that's really important for a, a, a fan exploring the show to see is that uh, no, there is no one episode that everybody hates or loves. It's true. With the possible exception of The Twin Dilemma. I like The Twin Dilemma. My mom likes The Twin Dilemma. So there you go. Well, you're related. That's, you know. I think it just runs in the family, obviously. And and most people, most right-thinking people like the girl in the fireplace. But, you know, we all have our uh, – some people like the end of time. I, I like the end of time. Yeah. Glenn, I love you. <laughs> oh, all right. So let's 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 talk a little bit, We you know, with the, with our remaining, you know, half, half hour-ish uh, about – about the Russell T. Davis era, yeah, I laugh. Yeah, so for the next for the next five hours, uh, this telethon begins now. Let's go to the tote board. Um, talking talking about the, uh, the the Russell T. Davis era, and we should start with the first season uh, with Christopher Eccleston. 
It's not exactly a John Syracuse-style opening statement, but Glenn said earlier that uh, he felt like the Moffat era was a little bit more uneven as far as the writing goes. I think it's worth noting before we start talking about the RTD era that uh, from from what we can tell, RTD really had a very heavy hand in the scripting of pretty much every single episode, except for the Moffat episodes. I guess for Moffat, it was written into his contract that he didn't get rewritten so much. So I think... I think you really do sort of see the auteur touch to this entire run of RTDs because he was, I mean, fan wisdom has it that there are certain scripts here and there that are, are it's not exactly just a page one rewrite. It's it's like a word one rewrite. Some of the writers had pretty much nothing to do with the final product. So I read the writer's tale and I think he outright admits, you know, I mean, this yep. happened with, uh, with uh, Torchwood, the children of um, Earth. That was... Mm-hmm essentially rewritten most of it, it sounds like, from the scripts that came in. I mean, I know that wasn't a Doctor Who canon. And, but- and those later David Tennant specials that have the co-writer bylines, it's like sort of admitting that I'm going to have a writer do the initial work and then I'm going to come in. I mean, he was, they were defining, when I said they were figuring out how to make the show, I think one of the things was also figuring out a very American concept for television, which is the showrunner, yeah. which didn't yeah. really exist uh, on these BBC shows. It was really much like the whole season was written by one person or people would come in and they would write episodes. But with Russell Davis, he the way he defined it was, um, I'm going to get these writers to write these scripts, but then the, the the final pass to make it all consistent is going to be me. And he did, uh, by all accounts, with with everybody except except Stephen Moffat. And I think uh, you know that was that was it. He he, this was his job. He felt to make the show consistent and exactly what he wanted it to be was to do that. Um, you know, it was always going to be his last stamp on it before it saw you know shooting. There's a lot of Joss Whedon's Buffy DNA in his Doctor Who. Well, look at Rose. I mean, I, Rose is is an uneven episode. There are moments where I feel like I'm watching an episode of the Power Rangers, uh, where the music is bizarre, and there's the thing with the hand that's floating in the air that they're wrestling with, and the trash bin, and the plastic Mickey, and, and that Rose doesn't <laughs> notice. Okay. Um, oh, it's, and it's EastEnders also yeah, in the middle there, too. They've sort of brought in other shows. Yeah, so it's it's got problems but at the same time it's so clear of the intentions that he's got and the Buffy DNA and as Buffy is my favorite show of all time I you know I can feel it and it's one of Russell Davis's favorite shows that like Rose has got the, her Buffy moment at the end where she where she swings on the rope and kicks the the auton into the into the pit and and you know you, you that, that it's about family and that we meet Rose's mother and her boyfriend and that it, it's a, a show about what happens if you're if you're the companion and you meet the doctor and you go away with him and what what are all the ramifications of that just so such a modern take on it that's there from episode one even though there are lots of issues where they didn't have the tone right and i think they didn't know how to do the effects and they didn't know how to shoot it and it was way late and over budget and all these problems but i do think at the core um russell davis knew what he wanted to get to it just took some time to figure it out figure out how to get there well i i'd like to speak in defense of or not defensive i guess we're not defending defend the indefensible series it's uh, <laughs> uh but i think i i think it's a i think it's a great run however uneven it is and how much is getting their feet settled there's um it's got so many brilliant moments across it so even episodes that don't work i think uh like the dalek episode is very odd you know they're bringing them back it's part of that 
I think there's so many aspects in this series in which you see the seeds of what he obviously was thinking about, and having read the writer's tale, he did not have planned out. Like, there was a lot of stuff churning in his head. He did not have arcs written on walls that no one ever saw. There's a lot of stuff that was going on in that man's very, very, very busy and overworked, underslept, over-cigaretted mind. Uh, but, um, like, the arc of Bad Wolf in season one, I think, is wonderful. I actually regularly watch just the end of, or the parts, a parting of the ways for that bit, and the fact that he created such a strong resonance of that arc and you go back and you watch like oh he built this in. that's the, that's the joss whedon effect too he 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 that's the joss whedon idea of building it in and having it come to an end and not end on a cliffhanger it was totally the model the first season of buffy is in in some ways i think the model for the first season of the of the new series yeah because the whole thing right the end of end of end of uh, buffy season one the whole thing collapses and they have to find a new it's sort of a new villain and then there's echoes in later yeah. seasons right and so i think they i think he built a, a terrific arc and i think he built the template for the seasons that followed i don't think if i remember right they didn't know that eccleston was going to leave he decided to leave once it came out that he was going to so he was was he originally committed or they thought they'd have him for more than the first uh season I, maybe that's too inside baseball i don't know yeah i think it's i think at some point during the filming they knew he was leaving four days it was four days after the first episode started that it was announced to the public oh yeah and he was everyone was pissed because you know you're right yeah they were angry, but but I think I mean I just think there's all the elements in there is like the fact that you start and you find out he's the last of the Time Lords. You're like, okay, wow, this is new, this is different. It's a whole, we don't have the trials of the Time Lords and Time Lords showing up and disappearing. <laughs> it's a whole other thing. The end of the world is a totally different tone, and he puts his companion immediately in danger. He feels responsible for her, and then he screws up getting her back at the right moment to. Uh, oh no, wait, is it the end of the world or is it? Uh, isn't it that the end of end of the world? He brings her back, and she's been gone for a year her mother's freaked out that's the beginning of the of the farting alien two-parter actually oh i'm sorry oh that's the uh, aliens of london right so um but i just thought uh the idea of bringing in historical characters and which happened a lot after that we get him first with uh with um charles dickens yes the celeb the celebrity historical as they like to right call you know we now. get then we get uh, uh, shakespeare later um but and then like how are we gonna get the daleks back the daleks were the most popular villain in the history mm-hmm. of the series and they're gone ostensibly forever and they come back you get the sense in unquiet dead that seeds of the higher species the higher races were the ones who suffered in the time war and we've been dispossessed and then that echoes I mean, that comes in Rose, then it echoes in Unquiet Dead, and it comes back again and again. Uh, the Father's Day, where you see that with the Time Lord's not there, things are falling apart. Um, so I feel like they did a, he did a great job in building the world that paid off in subsequent seasons. And, there, and again, like, there's that moment in The Doctor Dances where he says, everybody lives. For once, everybody lives. And you're like, oh, this is a great moment. I forget in Doctor Who, everybody dies. Like, there's so many. <laughs> like, I'm watching them, like, and I watched it when it was first aired. I'm listening to him say that. I'm like, oh, my god you're right and i'm like practically in tears like an episode in which the doctor actually is able finally to cure everybody to heal everybody that's the counterpoint to the classic series episode caves of androzani where everybody except perry dies everybody right. including the doctor <laughs> yeah. even the doctor right. dies in that episode <laughs> or horror of fang rock where everybody but the doctor and leela dies oh my god yeah exactly let me jump on to what glenn just said um end of the world ends with the sound of a baby's cry when uh, oh. they when um, when the doctor takes Rose back and you don't see uh, any of the people in the landscape, you know, it, for all you're almost led to believe that they are going back to the dead world, and then off camera you hear a baby's cry, 
and then you see the um, the hustle and bustle of 21st century life. When I heard that cry, uh, this is the second episode of the new series. I have been watching Doctor Who off and on as a kid, and I've ignored it during the wilderness years, and I don't know if I'm really going to like this new show. And I was emotionally moved by Doctor Who. And as much as I loved Doctor Who when I was a teenager, I was never emotionally moved by it. It was it was a fun sci-fi story. And that was completely unexpected. It was completely Russell T. Davis's approach to the show that he was going to make you care about these characters rather than using them as set pieces to advance the plot along. Between that and everybody lives in The Doctor Dances, that was when I just completely bought into what was going on. Fan for Life started a podcast. I would say that scene may be, that last scene of the end of the world, may be my favorite single scene in the new series. And it's funny because that's an episode that is famously the most expensive episode that they ever did because it's got huge amounts of CGI. They shot it early and I think I think it came in like two days before they aired it because it was <laughs> it was just a, an insane amount of, of, of work. And yet that last scene is completely just shot on a street in in Wales, presumably, um, doubling for London. And it's just a street and it's just the doctor and Rose and she's in her hoodie and he tells her that all his people are dead and she's just seen the earth be destroyed. And she says, do you smell chips? Um, and it's just bringing it back to, but right now, right now we're alive, all of us, you and me and, and all of humanity. And it all comes to an end, but right now let's live. And it is, it, you're right, Chip. It, it is also that moment of, of like, well, I didn't know the show could do this. Yeah, and here I am kind of on, once again, on the other side of the coin. <laughs> I was, I'm you know, been watching Doctor Who since I was five, and I didn't ignore the show during the wilderness years. I, I re-watched uh, all of the ones that I had access to and showed it to other people and got them on the bandwagon. And so it was a big deal for me. And when the show came back, I was, I was very much the sort of crusty old school fangirl <laughs> who was not, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't want to open my heart to, to a new show. I, I mean, I. I was excited that it was coming back, but I was a little worried. And then when I saw it, 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 it was very clear from the beginning that this is a, a different show. Uh, one of the biggest differences being that the show clearly is sort of told at the beginning from the point of view of the companion. This mm -hmm. is a show about Rose every yes. bit as much as it is about the Doctor, if not more. And I did not like that. Um, I've come to terms with it by now. But at the time, that was something that was really, really difficult for me to, to switch my way of thinking about this show. Because for me, it was really always about the Doctor. And the show did in the classic series. It did make me feel things on a regular basis. I was I was impassioned about this show. So uh, you know, I cried when Adric died, and and Aww. at multiple other times throughout the the course of the show. And I I, I was used to seeing it from that direction and crying about those things. And then we came along, and, and here we're we're seeing a companion, and there's there's flirtiness a little bit going on, <laughs> and it's cheeky, and I just I didn't know how to feel about it. It's, it's it's interesting that Glenn mentioned Dalek because I think for me that was the time that I was able to finally jump on board with that story because finally you're bringing back something from the past. You've got this Dalek, which Eccleston's performance in that is just out of this world. 
it's so clear that there's there's this fraught background um, between him and this creature, and it just and and I'm a, maybe I'm a little biased because Rob Sherman is who wrote it is one of my favorite people. I adore him uh, at every convention I see, and he gives really good hugs. So if you ever meet Rob Sherman, <laughs> ask him for a hug because he's excellent at it. And the Dalek episode not only not only um, does it make that connection to the classic series from scene one where he sees a classic series Cyberman head in a glass case mm-hmm. and says I'm getting old which I thought was wonderful but it also <laughs> has the um effect of this is the that's the episode where we see how how broken he is because of the time war this is where it comes out that he is really messed up and you know I saw it happen. I made it happen, and he's going to kill the Dalek. And oh yeah, it makes a gun, and you're like, the Doctor made a gun. Oh, okay. No, I was like, yes, the Doctor made a gun. He's done that so many times before. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, but it's still, I don't know. I think it's still a moment. It's like, well, he he makes weapons in different ways, but this was a gun, gun. This was a gun, gun, gun. It was like to blow up a creature that that Rose had learned was not was not the monster that he was assuming it was, which is, I think, the interesting thing there. I think in the new series, in the new series, they've very much played up the, you know, I don't like guns, I don't like people with guns sort of uh, sort of thing, which, I mean, there were there were hints of that in the past and there were moments, and but it, there is, there's a really funny super mix on YouTube of, of all of the times that you see the Doctor holding weapons, and sometimes they are gun guns, so it's, it's pretty funny. I would argue, in fact, that the new series has been exactly as consistent as the classic series in him talking about how, how he's a pacifist and how guns are terrible and all that while also blowing things up if he needs to. That's just... Doctor Who. That's why the Dalek <laughs> episode when when Davros when Davros accuses them and says you've turned all these you're not you're the great whoa, but you turned all your friends into weapons. The Doctor's like burn, huh? I guess you got me there because <laughs> I have. They're all got they got the Osterhog and Key and the yeah okay maybe so. so. This season also brings us the Empty Child and the Doctor dances, which is a fantastic two parter, which I like a lot. Which is Stephen Moffat's uh, first piece on the new series father's day paul cornell's story which is i just watched these back not too long ago with my family and and uh father's day always takes me by surprise because it's it's it it, it um it's got some silly strange things in it but it is you know the emotional core is what's important amazing that her father comes back again that actor was terrific he did a great job and then he comes back and it's the real family thing or jackie's a pain the mother but they you know it's real family stuff and then he comes back again and again because he's he really fills this really strong uh, role in the series until uh, until Rose is gone. Anything more we should say about the Christopher Eccleston season before we move on? I would also like to give RTD some some more points um, for the arc that that Glenn was talking about, and you guys mentioned the the Bad Wolf arc. I. I'm a sucker for an arc. Season 16 of Doctor Who, the key to time season, is my all-time favorite. And that is, that's my favorite kind of arc where you get, you know, there's a tiny little bit in each episode, but each episode is still its own standalone monster of the week kind of thing. So it's it's not arc dependent. I mean, I don't want to compare it to Moffat too much, but, you know, you get more of an arc in like season five. And, you know, that's that's all well and good. But but the, the the stuff that's that's the best for me are the ones where you can have your own standalone episodes and then get little bits that are sort of hints or teased in. So I I really did like the way the Bad Wolf arc played out, even if I you know wasn't the biggest Rose fan, seeing it you know all revolve around her. Well, he still did it well. I'm reminded of that when we just watched uh, my my family and I were were making our way forward, and we just watched the uh, Silurian two parter from the first season of Matt Smith, and. 
it uh, short version, it's much better than I remember it. So I'll, I'll give it that. <laughs> but literally at the very end, in the last five minutes, the the it you can see the script paused for two minutes mm-hmm. of arc related material, and then immediately press play again as if those two minutes didn't happen because it was obviously inserted into the script to further the arc and it it reminded me that you know russell davis with his light touch on these scripts it's not until boomtown that anybody comments on the fact that they keep seeing bad wolf so it's not until the penultimate episode up until that point as a viewer you're like hmm bad wolf we keep seeing that he and you start being like oh i spotted this week's bad wolf but it's not uh, taking over the show until until he finally sees the Blythe Droog project and goes, wait a second, nah. <laughs> yeah, right. We should point out that this is the uh, where we get not just Captain Jack Harkness, but um, we get uh, they must be giants. No wait, Captain Jack Harkness, Captain right? Jack Harkness, you got it. I got his name right. Yep. Um, Heck yeah. My memory. Uh, and so Captain Jack arises, and we start to get the themes, like the whole thing about, well, you know, the future is flexible. You know, I want to kiss him, I want to kiss her. And I think there's it's great because in that place through the rest of the season is that there's more sort of gender and orientation availability in the show than there was before. And, and uh, you know, I don't think it was perfect, but that it's not new to science fiction either, but it's new to, to Doctor Who. And, um, and it brought it to a broad audience in the UK and then later to a uh, broader audience in the U.S., normalizing something that is normal for people true as i have not i have not read a writer's tale i just know a lot of it because i've (laughs) heard interviews about it and heard people talk about it how much of that you know captain jack comes to us in um the empty child and the doctor dances which those are actually moffat episodes and as we've said moffat episodes did not get heavily rewritten by rtd so does anybody know how much rtd had to do with the creation of that character i mean i'm certain he had quite a bit to do with it my understanding is that he gave moffat the a pretty detailed brief um and that captain jack was built into the back half of the season uh right from the beginning so i don't think although moffat wrote the episodes that introduced him i don't think that you could say that moffat created the character which is un- which is unusual for before uh, British television, because frequently, you know, the first the first time the character appears is the the writer of the episode who is responsible and considered the creator. It's funny as we move on to to, to the David Tennant era. We, I, what I noticed is, you know, they like to they do like to give the creators credit when um, when uh, when a monster recurs. Let's say, and one of the things that amuses me is that when the Ood appear. In the in the uh, Stephen Moffat era, there's a credit that says "Ood" created by Russell T. Davis, which really amuses me because the episodes mm-hmm. the Ood were introduced in not credited to Russell T. Davis, but it's, it's like a, <laughs> it's just a tacit uh, admittance that he created that he created them. He said, "We'll call it the Ood." I want it to be kind of um, uh, octopusy face, uh, and uh, I rewrote the script anyway, <laughs> right? The Impossible Planet. <laughs> so it's just it's funny. It's like this. This nothing, nothing special about it except that it totally means it was him. Even though technically Matt Jones created the Ood, right? But he didn't. He didn't. It was Russell <laughs> T. Davis. That's who did it. Then let's talk about David Tennant. Let's talk about good old, good old David Tennant. So, so Christopher Eccleston, Christopher Eccleston does a year. Uh, does a good job. Uh, sounds like it's a combination of him. You know, not necessarily wanting to commit to any job for a very long period of time. And it sounds like the way that that first season was produced was really trying 
on everybody and that he decided at some point that he didn't want to be a part of it anymore. And I don't know if we'll ever know more detail than than about that. But but uh, so he leaves and they sh- they shoot very late. They shoot a scene with David Tennant. Uh, just regener- post regeneration that'll get them in the in that uh, the parting of the ways that'll get them through to the to the Christmas special and so here the show has been a success and they immediately have to change the leading man. Welcome to Doctor Who, everybody. This is what happens, <laughs> and uh, we get David David Tennant who who uh, stays for three full series and uh, three different companions and uh, is in many people's minds their you know their doctor uh and at, at a, a level that i i think when the new series came back nobody kind of anticipated that this sort of thing would happen where he 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 really ruled it for a long time and stuck in the minds of a lot of a lot of fans yeah and, and remarkably enough he, uh, up until very very recently he was still considered in several fan polls and uh, general public polls in britain he was considered the most popular doctor even though he'd been gone for three years and Matt Smith was absolutely killing it as a as a performer, but uh, there is something about the 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 skinny, handsome, geek chic guy that struck a chord. It was there's something like, and I will be the first to admit, despite my love for David Tennant's run, that he did not have many facial expressions. <laughs> uh, he pulled out a number of the, the teeth bared, slightly angry, you know, slightly wide eyed thing. You saw a lot of it, but um, but it's interesting. Uh, I read this thing years ago. There was this comparison about Tom Hanks and uh, um, who was his co star in the uh, AOL the the um, Meg Ryan the movie Meg Ryan. See my brain, my brain. Where is this? Two consecutive episodes that have made reference to Sleepless in Seattle slash You've Got Mail. Two 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 consecutive episodes. It's telling me something. The New Yorker wrote this piece about them where it was sort of pre uh, – it, like, it was like Tom Hanks made uh, five terrible movies and then five ones that all grossed bazillion dollars. And But it was comparing the fact that you can look at him and his face barely does anything and you know what's going on inside. And Meg Ryan had all this business. It was describing the amount of business her face did and her hand – like the, the business that she did to convey an emotion in like similar scenes or cut back and forth. And I feel like – David Tennant does not have a ton of facial expressions, but he has an incredible uh, emotive capacity. Emma Thompson, same thing. Emma Thompson does not have many facial expressions, and she's one of my favorite actresses. But she does at times seem to have an entirely immobile face, yet convey this entire range and sophistication, something at a glance with her face not moving about a scene. And so David Tennant, I would argue, some people get hung up on that. They're like, he has three expressions. I'm like, okay, but he has you know vocal tone and body and whatever. And the okay, so. I want to dangle some red meat in front of Erica um, because <laughs> because Delicious. when you t- when you think about David Tennant, one word immediately comes to mind, and I don't think it's a word that a lot of uh, classic oriented Doctor Who fans like to affiliate with their Doctor, and that is cool. David Tennant is cool in a way that uh, no Doctor I think had really been cool, which is to say. Um, um. Uh, I'm, I'm just cool. That's the only word I can come up with. I don't think anybody was cool until jo- uh, John Pertwee, David Tennant are like the two cool doctors I can think of. See, I always thought I always thought Peter Davison was cool. So maybe that's just me being weird. But I I just saw a, kind of a direct line connecting those two. He's he's very he's quirky. He's cool in a 
in uh, the guy wearing the wrong sorts of clothes and not noticing sort of cool. Well, the geek the geek chic thing works really well on David Tennant, and it helps that David Tennant, you know, they did again talking about good choices made by the production team. I mean the the suit with the with the trainers. Uh, so th- this. Uh, uh, you know, uh, and good casting. David Tennant, also David Tennant being a very serious Doctor Who fan, cast as the Doctor, get, kind of gets what the part is. I felt like there was also that he was, uh, you know, he was, he, he, it always felt kind of iconic to me. He always felt like this is going to be the Tom Baker of uh, of the new series where we're going to go back and they are going to be people who love all the Doctors, but that we're going to go back and be like, remember David Tennant in that suit? Like, it's it, it felt like like a, an iconic performance from a good actor uh, with 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 good scripts. And it was with Christopher Eccleston only doing a year. I feel like it was like exactly what the show needed because you couldn't really – it all of that goodwill that had been built up in that first year could have really kind of fallen apart if there had been another quick change or if the casting decision had been different. And instead, I, I get the feeling actually that um, that – David Tennant was on just as I feel like Peter Capaldi was on uh, Stephen Moffat's list, and then he cast Matt Smith. I get the feeling that David Tennant was probably on Russell T. Davis's list, and then they mm-hmm. cast Christopher Eccleston, and then kept him in the back pocket for for later. They did a good uh, a good bit there, though, which was they explained later, and I think it's a reasonable explanation inside that universe that it's like Rose. When you met me, I was like this guy. I was born out of war. Uh, you know, I was angry, and you calmed me right and that's how he then when he, then the Eccleston doctor becomes uh the tenant doctor a tenant saying he was born you know he was regenerated at a point in which he was sort of healed and he comes and that then they tie that back into later with our more recent things with uh bringing back uh, my names have all fallen out of my head the day of the doctor <laughs> why can't I remember his name we all know him David Tennant Matt Smith John Hurt no. No, the before John Hurt, the one he turns from. It's oh, Paul McGann. Paul McGann, thank you. My God, my people. Night of the Doctor. Sorry, so Night of the Doctor, you have that recurrence where they're like, oh, well, you can be, a, there can be these different kinds of regenerations. And they say it explicitly, and I think that introduces it to the canon. But that's sort of what Tennant was saying. And I think they use that transition to say, here's a different kind of Doctor, but then it's sort of retcon explained it in a way that's plausible. It's like the reason he's different is he didn't just kill everybody. He's one step removed. And then you get that again later as you come back to you know these recent specials you get that um that echo again like i was one step away you know i counted and then matt smith saying i forgot you know how many died in our our november episode by the way uh, which which was uh, i think we recorded it literally the day before that paul mcgann special um got dropped on the internet um uh, glenn 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 predicted that Paul McGann would be in the 50th anniversary special. And I said, absolutely not. And you know what? We were both kind of right because he's not in the 50th special, but he was there. I opened that episode with the joke, please state the nature of your medical emergency. And then the special or the little thing started with a doctor program asking what the emergency was. So, Gosh, Glenn, who who don't you know? The future. I know the future, (laughs) Jason. Yeah, but has he ever hugged Rob Sherman? That's all Next, I got. I'm going to Gallifrey One. Maybe I can still. Maybe. <laughs> Rob, run. Don't go. Don't go this year. <laughs> run. Run. Otherwise, you'll be Glenned forever. <laughs> Once you're in Glenn's Glenning database, you can never escape. My face just turned into a skull and back again. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so so uh, because we are not going to go on for five hours, I want to I want to sort of step through the seasons and get some thoughts about sort of uh, uh, 
uh, particularly high points, and if you want to mention a low point too uh, for each each season, that would be good. So let's start with David Tennant's first season, series two. I will just say I love the girl in the fireplace. I am a softy. I think that is a wonderful episode that plays with time and in a lot of really uh, interesting ways. It is funny that Stephen Moffat ransacked it for river song later um but i think as a as a standalone episode it's it's uh it hits me in all the right places um and i actually also love the impossible planet satan pit episode i think it's really awesome and dark and weird and the ood are great and almost everybody dies and it's got that great claustrophobic base under siege so that's those are my those are my uh my uh, high points, I think, and my low point is Fear Her, which is a really bad episode. <laughs> I've pro- I swear, I've actually never watched it. That's the one I, I tried to watch it three times and I gave up. Erica, what are your highs and lows from season two? My high is absolutely School Reunion because oh, I so have good. Been a Sarah, mm. I've been a Sarah Jane fan since I was five years old. So it was just that episode did everything to me emotionally that it was supposed to. Uh, the, the only problem I sort of have with it now is just the fact that they they the way that she speaks to the doctor makes it look like she's been pining away her whole life. And I don't like that thought. But then the Sarah Jane that we see in the Sarah Jane adventures, uh, there's there's no hint of that. So I, I've retconned it in my head to be that she was just trying to guilt him because that was a really crappy thing of, of him to do. I like the idea that she, she thought he was going to come back and he just never did and i'm fine with anger but i'm not fine with the i've been waiting around for you my whole lifeline that that made me a little iffy uh milo i think and i have to admit i have not gone back and watched it since it aired but i really did not like love and monsters and i know that's a very divisive divisive story that's yeah that's really polarizing and i don't think fear her is that bad i i'm fine with fear (laughs) i watched it again and i think it is um love and monsters I think fans don't like it f- for a couple reasons. One is that it is completely off format and does not take the format of the show very seriously. On another level, it is Russell T. Davis's comment about fandom. And I think for some people, they took it personally, although I think it's done with love um, and monsters. It, it is it is it is perhaps the weirdest episode of Doctor Who ever. But I kind of li- I kind of like it. Any Doctor Who joke that end or any Doctor Who story that ends with a fellatio joke, that's just not okay for me. This is tea time television. I, I agree about that. I agree about that. Yeah. I think that was out of place. Yeah. I watched that and my mouth dropped. I showed it to my wife, who was not a Doctor Who fan. And I said, Are they saying what I think they're saying? And she's like, Oh, yeah. I'm like, Whoa, Kidoki. That, that was, I would say, unfortunate in what otherwise I actually kind of enjoy as an episode that's so strange and so outside. It literally is what, how do other people view the doctor? There's also the great the joke about Clom. Where are you from? Clom? You're from Clom? I, ter- I have terrible eczema. Is that like eczema? No, it's much worse. It's eczema. Anyway, I have eczema. It's terrible. Chip, what are, what are your highs and lows? I love it when Doctor Who experiments with the format and uh, Love and Monsters tries and succeeds well enough until it makes those sort of crass turns to it. But that's a the last five minutes are not good. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a failure of execution, not of concept. Um, I feel the same way about uh, another divisive episode post Russell T. Davis Rings of Akaten, which some people hate and some people love. Uh, but um I'm I'm with I'm with Erica on school reunion and that is the first time when the show really not just with Daleks but just embraces the fact that there was this classic series and there wa- these classic these classic characters were there and did matter. Um it's very 
it, uh, it's very sentimental, and that is uh, that is a tool that Russell T. Davis wields throughout all uh, five years that he was on the show. Sentimentality. And uh, when we were talking earlier before, Erica, about uh, whether we got emotionally engaged with the show, I think that the sentimentality of Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who is either a big turn on or a big turn off if you um, if you accept that, if you feel like you're being manipulated. School Reunion, Girl in the Fireplace, uh, all of these all of these episodes really play on your emotional heartstrings right up to the point when uh, Rose falls into the void and is saved by her dad and the oh. the the love relationship that saddest beach in the world the saddest beach in the world well the fact that russell and uh, that russell t davis uh explicitly is playing with a um relationship between the doctor and a companion that can be read as romantic or at least as uh complex with romantic issues involved uh, that is something that, uh, with the exception of the uh, kissing in the Paul McGann TV movie, mm. you know, that's something that was also completely alien to the show. Uh, really, really divisive, and I think that uh, I think that more than anything else, that marks the uh, Russell T. Davis era. Even though Stephen Moffat didn't abandon that when uh, when he married off the Doctor to River Song. No, I think that's actually what I was just going to say is that I think that sentimentality that is the hallmark of the RTD era is a double edged sword. And I think that both of those those edges hit me different ways, because when it was sentimentality aimed at the show itself, like in School Reunion, um, when, you know, it's, it's sentimentality for even something like the Daleks or the Cybermen, where it's just sort of like poking at the fans that that hit me where I lived and I loved it uh, when it was sentimentality focused on this perhaps love story between the doctor and his companion that just that completely threw me out of the story and made me super super uncomfortable because i spent so much time in my head trying to find ways in which i could read it as completely platonic and and it is possible because i think that he very skillfully made it not overt so that the the shippers can can do their thing and be happy with it and the old school fans like me can see it a different way and it still works but i felt like i was doing a lot of mental gymnastics to make sure i kept seeing it that way and that's what made me uncomfortable. Yeah, I do. I do really like the. Um, I, I love. I love the way this season ends. I, I uh, the crazy idea of putting the Daleks and the Cybermen together. In I mean, it's it, it's it, you know, if you're a fan and you're the producer of Doctor Who, your fan fiction is Doctor Who, <laughs> and that's what Army of Ghosts and Doomsday. I mean, just to have the banter between because you are better at one thing, you are better at dying. That is just amazing. And the I felt like there was enough uh, time spent with this relationship that the emotional payoff. Whether you're thinking about, I, I think it's no doubt she loves him. Does he love her in the same way or not? You can kind of argue it either way. But either way, she is being torn away from him, and he, it is completely tragic. Either way. And, I, you know, that was what a wonderful ending. In fact, I would argue that as much as it was sort of nice to see Billy Piper again later, that I really, it kind of makes me mad that um, that this ending gets devalued, because it is so heartbreaking and so brilliant and i you know it bugs me that they kind of ret you know they didn't retcon it but they like made it not as important later 
he walks away. Um, I think the ending, yeah, the ending of that of the season is my favorite part of the season, not because it was over, but I think it's so beautifully done musically in spare, and then I'm burning the heart of its son to come bring my thin my hologram image too yeah but the the thing that gets me this is the problem with him coming you know with a duplicate and coming back later and leaving the duplicate with rose and all the rest of it it's like she's working to get back to him they're trying to make a reality gun to send her across dimensions which turns out to be convenient he like usually is like oh he's about to say maybe i i suppose you know i love you whatever he's going to say but then He's like, all right, and then you know, Donna Noble shows up, and his world is thrown up, you know, and he goes back into his into running, 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 and he doesn't stop and say, maybe there's someone. I mean, that's the great moment. This this is what in the Moffat era, uh, the role that um, I totally have lost my mind. Why can't I remember his name? He dies again and again. Why can't Rory? I Rory? I, apparently, the heat in Seattle. It has been ninety degrees today, which is the equivalent of a thousand degrees. <laughs> Anywhere else. So, <laughs> so anyway, so Rory. So with Rory and Amy, Rory's role is do- the doctor says, and you know, in the in the episode after the Pandorica, op- Pandorica opens, the next one. What's the next episode mm-hmm. again? I've lost my mind. Thank you, Big Bang. Uh, she, he says, "Is the whole universe important?" You know, and Rory says, "She's that important to me that the whole universe is not as important to me as bringing Amy back." The doctor doesn't have that, and I think David Tennant, or you know, his doctor leaving Rose behind and going, ah, oh, well, the doors between the universe is closed, and I guess that's it. It happens. Yeah, and then when he gets back, he's like, well, I'm going to leave this copy of myself, and Donna, you know, i got to take her back and start out the, figure out the metacrisis, you know, that kind of thing. And I, so I, I think it does devalue it in the sense that it shows that he walks away again and again and again, which is a theme, you know, keeps going, keeps coming as a theme. This is part of what's neat about her showing up, Rose showing up in the Day of the Doctor, I think is astonishing because it's not her. I loved her in that, but I think the idea that he gets taunted by her image, but only the one who doesn't remember hers who sees it, I think that's almost a little bit of a revenge that <laughs> that she comes back that way. I forgot about Doomsday. Um, that is another highlight for me. That's the only episode of Doctor Who that I ever watched and just felt so overwhelmed by that I had to immediately start it over and watch it again. Yes. I mean, there was there was ugly, ugly crying during that. So yes, it's 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 so good that it doesn't matter if why you're crying. Also, Army of Ghosts was, I think, relatively weak and sort of well, it's it's set up right. It's yeah, and it was kind of like uh, and this and plastic sheeting and blah, and then it's like Doomsday is like it just brought it over and over. Again. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Uh, should we move on? Let's move on. Third third series, highs and lows here. Glenn, do you want to start with this? What were your... I was a, I was a big fan of many episodes in this season. I think this is a very strong one. This and is the Martha season. Yeah, and I think she's great. I'd call out, I like I liked Smith & Jones. We were talking about before. Shakespeare Code was fun. It had some good elements to it. Gridlock was ridiculous, but they had to do it because they were trying to establish relationship, whatever. Um, the Daleks episodes, I thought, again, interesting, but like sort of too much. And, and uh, But they were setting the stage for further things. Glenn, are your highs and lows literally every episode. <laughs> oh, I'm trying to figure out which one. Okay, all right, I'll give you the low. The low is the Lazarus experiment, which I hated. I thought that was it was uh, not good, and it was bad use of Mark Gaddis, who's wonderful, and I just thought it was uh, boring. I actually think uh, the family of blood might be the high. I like the three... The human nature... Human nature less. Family of blood more, especially the ending. I will watch... There are some episodes <laughs> I will watch the ending, and I'm like, and like, and this is what he did to us. He made us live forever. You're like, oh my god. This is like four different kinds of irony, each of them perfect. Uh, so the three-part conclusion, I think, is, is actually totally terrific, but I think Family of Blood, probably the high point in terms of a very... I mean, and then the, touching the watch and seeing his alternate future 
adventure, and then uh, oh, the very, and it's really I think a terrific episode. Chip, I think Glenn likes season three. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's so. It was a good one. You got very excited there. It's it, it's it's a pretty good season. Uh, I like Freema Adjaman when she starts, and then they really put the character into a hole with the unrequited love um, thing, which. Which in itself isn't so awful, except that that's all that they did with her, and it it weakened her as a character, and she doesn't really come back into her own until she leaves the series for a while, and then shows back up in Torchwood and uh, fourth season. Well, in Last of the Time Lords, she she is really kind of redeemed, but it's all happened off cam off camera. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then there's a reset. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. So it's not one of my favorite seasons um even though I really like the actress and I think that Tennant does a good job as usual, but um you know, that's our the Shakespeare code with the spirit, with the gratuitous uh JK Rowling references <laughs> and uh, magic spells and Expelliarmus at the end, even though there's some brilliantly funny bits in it. Um, you know, uh Shakespeare on on, on the make uh with Everyone. With everyone, yes. I loved that guy. He was great. Um, but it's it's not one of my favorite seasons. Erica? I it's funny that season three is very it's it's not one of my favorites and it is one of my favorites because I think the first half the first half is all just kind of low points for me I didn't like I don't like celebrity historicals usually so I didn't like the Shakespeare code I, I wasn't on board with Martha really at first so just all the way up through until we get to human nature and then suddenly it skyrockets and it just blows off the charts and I'm a little bit of a Paul Cornell fangirl um, who I think I've also hugged and uh, he just oh, human nature is I like human nature better than family of blood, although I love them both. I liked seeing David Tennant play a different character than Mm -hmm. the doctor because John Smith is a different person and it is so clear in every way. So, I mean, it's, it's written excellently from, from Paul Cornell's perspective and then it's played wonderfully from David Tennant's. Uh, I just, everything came together for me there. And then you follow it up with blink, which you know, as I said before, is is wonderful. And then you have Utopia, where you get to see Derek freaking Jacoby, who is my favorite actor of all time, um, playing, you know, the moment that I figured out what was about to happen, that he was actually the master. I sat up on the couch, and this is in a room with a friend who doesn't know all that much about Doctor Who, and I just, just sat up on the couch. I was like, oh my God. And I then I stood up and raised my hands in the air, and he was like, what on earth? And I was like, never mind. You'll find out in a minute. Get it in um, a minute. Yeah, and then you have the sound of drums, which is yeah, slightly less. And then I'll explain later. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that Utopia turn. Um, I I, lo- I really like Utopia. It's not my high point of the season, but I, I like it because it is two things. It is for the first whatever forty minutes, thirty minutes. Um, it's like Russell Davis saying, "What is the most Doctor Who-y episode I could make?" It's like there's there you know there's in the base so that it's sort of under siege, and there's the rocket, and there's the and the, and we've got this professor and his companion that the Doctor and his companion meet, and actually it's the, the Doctor and two companions because you have Captain and Jack Cap- coming back, which is really classic right. Doctor Who. Plus, you know, yay, Captain Jack is back. That's more eye candy for me. A trillion years in the future, it's the farthest they've ever gone. The Time Lords are freaked out by it. So. 30, 30 minutes of that, you get you get about about five to seven minutes of that wonderful conversation between David Tennant and John Barrowman 
uh, where mm-hmm. John Barrowman is basically behind a sheet of glass doing radioactive things and dying over and over again. And they have the whole conversation about the Time Lords and about him regenerating and not coming back for him and what happened to Rose and all of that, which is really good. And then you get the end where we have the reveal of the Master and all of that, which is just the most uh, when i watched that with my kids i afterward i i was saying to my wife i think that's the most intense seven minutes of doctor who ever it is like you want to scream as it's happening it is so because so much is going on the the rocket is going and and martha is running and saying he's got the watch and 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 chantho and and uh, the professor are, are having their last little encounter and the 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 future kind are rushing into the base and and there's a regeneration i mean it's just it is so it is insanely intense and i do think that the the final two-parter is a big letdown it's fine but it's not great and utopia is is uh, yeah it's over it's overlooked in some ways because it is like three different episodes in one and yet it is great also it's russell t davis again in this series he seeded it with little bits and pieces i mean you see you see the john sims or you hear his his name his character throughout and you have no idea that it means anything until it comes together yeah yep um saxon's even in the runaway bride there's a that that's where it starts Mm -hmm. and it goes throughout the whole season um so, so so for me um it's very hard because i this is a season of highs and lows for me i i wouldn't say sort of beginning and end i feel like the daleks two-parter is about as bad as doctor who has gotten in the modern era i think it's a i think it's badly written badly conceived could have been better has sort of a little gem of an idea and then stretched it over too many episodes there's too much in it that doesn't make any sense even the idea of what if the daleks had to like become humanoid is kind of booted and miss it, it, it not handled well and the the uh the the climax is ludicrous because it's literally like in the theater because they don't have any other sets and so of course we'll take over new york from the stage of a theater because why um and lazarus experiment is not that much better and 42 is uh boring but not terrible but not interesting in any way it's a really deep dark hole in the middle of this season um the human nature two-parter is fantastic blink is blink it's like a twilight zone level episode it is it is on its own outside of doctor who i think a wonderful 45 minutes did we talk about this before did they plan to spin a show off because it so felt like they planned to spin a show off (laughs) the uh, the sally sparrow sparrow and nightingale adventures i was so angry that carrie mulligan became famous and Stuff. Super famous because yeah. they could have brought her back and made her a companion, but instead she had to become like an Academy Award nominee. So, but I've left off, and I like the Shakespeare Code. I didn't have a problem with the stupid things that were in it because it's just I, I thought it was a whole lot of fun. But I want to just say a word about Gridlock. I think Gridlock is one of the single best scripts. I think it's maybe the second best, if not the best, script Russell Davis wrote for the series. And I and I say that because. Um, I think he gets caught up in his operatic <laughs> finales and all of these things that he wants to do to say, I want this kind of Doctor Who episode. And Gridlock is this strange one-off episode. And I think it's kind of, I think it's kind of funny and I think it's kind of beautiful. Um, and it's got a sad ending, but I, I it, it feels like something very different. And I feel like it uses different parts of his talent. 
and I like I like it a lot. And it like the end of the of end of the world. It has a, a fantastic ending where Martha basically says, "You've been lying to me. You're going to sit down and tell me what happened." And meanwhile, they've freed the people of New New York. And I think it's I think it's actually a beautiful episode. And um, also, it has cat people in it. But I, I and it's funny. But I really like it a lot. It is strange and and beautiful, and I like it even though it's an odd choice. It's a great episode, and it also highlights uh, something that not a lot of people pick up on with Russell T. Davis, which is he can be a real cynical guy sometimes. Even for all the operatic and sentimentality stuff, the people in gridlock are trapped because they've been putting their hope in religious faith rather in rather than in getting something done. Although you could argue that they're actually putting their hope in the system and the society and their religious faith is the only thing keeping them alive. <laughs> but but it's yes, it is it is dark and weird on one level and yet uplifting and um positive about humanity in another way. It's very strange. I feel like this is I, I, I guess I'm not making this as, as clear as I would like to. I feel like if, if Russell T. Davis wasn't the showrunner and he was just brought in for a random episode, I feel like this is the kind of thing he would do as opposed to as the showrunner feeling the burden of I've got to write the introduction episode and I've got to write the conclusion episodes and all of that. This is just the drop in. And I think it's very cool. So if we ever make it to season four, the, he, he gets another episode in just like that. I know that was foreshadowing chip is what I was doing there. Uh, when I said that it was like one of his two best scripts. Anyway, we should talk about season four, which is with Donna, who, who, uh, can we just go out and say Donna is great? Can we do that? Donna is, is super great. Super, super great. I mean, in the Doctor Who magazine poll of the best companions, uh, it was Sarah Jane one and Donna two, I believe. (laughs) I believe that that is correct. (laughs) So, yeah. Uh, she's great. Uh, so great that they brought her back for Catherine. Tate. Fans were terrified. I know about that. I mean, that they were they were mild about her performance in The Runaway Bride. They were, Doctor Who fans are always suspicious of comedians coming onto their show, and um, and she became an incredibly subtle character, uh, and somebody that you just wanted to hug when she wasn't shouting at you. <laughs> Erica, have you hugged her? I have not, but I would love to. Yeah, sure. I would. I would too. She's uh, yeah, Red-headed. great, great character. Great uh, after having Rose and and Martha to have. Uh, you know, you're not mating with me, sunshine, <laughs> right? Oh, that was wonderful. You want to mate? No, no, I want a mate. You wouldn't. And once again, Partners in Crime is another one of those examples of the finely crafted, carefully structured introduction episode that has that fantastic scene where they are between several panes of glass having an entirely mimed conversation with each other, which is hilarious and strange all at once. That is a, just a great. I think I think Stephen Moffat said. Um, somebody asked him about criticism of Russell Davis and he said, read the partners in crime script. It's about as good a TV script as you'll ever read. <laughs> and that's that great bit. The, the whole thing, the coincidence thing too, that like the, the heartbeat, the whatever, like another great arc. It's like, Donna, I met you. Then I met you again. I met your father, your grandfather. And it's, and you're Some like, retcon okay, involved with all that, yeah, but still <laughs> it's true. But I, Bernard, who, lo- who does, who doesn't love a Bernard Cribbins appearance? I, I love I love Bernard Cribbins. Uh, Bernard Cribbins probably. Bernard. Um, Bernard, Bernard Cribbins. If you're English. Right said, right said Fred. Uh, it's, um, <laughs> but can I tell my favorite episode? Or yes, go know. ahead, Glenn. Go All right. Go well, so it. turn left. Turn left. So good. I watched that one again and again from that season. 
Because it's, um, I know it's kind of a, it's like, again, the doctor is barely in it, but it has so many wonderful things. It makes good use of the companions. It makes good use of, uh, of unit. Um, there's some crazy, there's, there's the bit, actually the thing I like is when she wakes up in the past on the street, lying on the ground and she hears the music and the guy in the boom box walks by with it. And I'm like, that's cute. I like that. It's a little, uh, uh, high anxiety moment there for us from. Uh, but I just think it's it's very uh, wonderfully structured, and at the end, I think that is one of the most chilling and wonderful bits. Like, and it's very short. Is she said two words? You know, who was a blonde girl? You know, who was it? What did she say? She said two words, and the bad wolf, and then the craziness. It's awful and crazy. That says bad wolf everywhere. Then the uh, the cloister bell, and it's complete completely ignored in the next episode. But it's a great ending. Exactly, totally. Then then the cloister <laughs> bell, and then it's just like, but it's a great little bit. It's like bad wolf, and then you're like, oh my god, they're gonna bring it around again. You know, you thought they'd already run through billy then there she is then they whatever then we can get bad wolf and so i i really like that episode you have a low point a low point um i'm not a big fan of the centaurans so maybe that's i thought that was the two-parter was too long and it's sort of tedious and the really irritating that early that early uh series two-parter is just a, it's a hard place to be yeah because you know i already mentioned my i thought planet of the planet of the ood is a really good sort of more canonical one with the doctor in it, but yeah, I um, it, yeah, I think that's it. I mean, I, the introduction of River Song is important, but I don't think those episodes are necessarily. I don't want to say they're the strongest of the season, but um, you know, actually, Doctor's Daughter, boy, I really did not like that episode at all. So that's probably the low point because the Centaurans of the Centaurans is too long. Yeah, okay. So Doctor's Daughter would be my low point. Turn left would be my high point. Erica, what do you think? You know, I'm looking at the list of, of episodes in that series, and I I don't know that I have a high point. That is just when I. Unless I could say that my high point is Donna herself, because I think fondly of the series because I ended up loving Donna so much. I I hated her in The Runaway Bride a lot. So I was I was one of those fans that was freaked out and nervous that she was coming back to actually be the companion. And I did not like Partners in Crime because of that scene that you were talking about, Jason, because there was there was so much silliness in it. And I just I don't like that kind of wacky slapstick stuff. Oh, right, right. It's the same. It's the Orphan Black thing. It's the same thing. All right. Exactly. So it was a big turnoff. So it took a few... You seem like such a nice person, and yet... <laughs> and yet. Uh, I'm really not. I'm not at all. Man, she, she, she confesses to liking Mira Grant books, and then it just all goes downhill from there, doesn't it? <laughs> yep. Somebody's yep. got to like them. Somebody's got to like them. <laughs> the, 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 Donna's got some great stuff in Fires of Pompeii. She's got some great stuff in Unicorn and the Wasp. She's got some good stuff in Silence in the Library, too. I didn't... I, I think going back and rewatching now, I would like her more in Partners in Crime and in Fires of Pompeii. I just, I didn't like, I just didn't like her characterization at first because it was so in your face. And that was, it was difficult for me. Um, but once I kind of got on board and learned to like her, then it was just, I, she could do no wrong. And I loved everything. And if I had to pick a high point, it would probably be the Santarin two-parter because I adore Santarins. Mm. And yep. I adore Santarins. <laughs> I adore Santarans too, but not not but not there. <laughs> no, I love them so much. So yeah, so that was that. I think that it, it, low point is just sort of most of it. Ah, um, but wow, <laughs> but the high point is is absolutely Donna for sure. However, it's, it's I have very mixed feelings about her end. Um, but mm. overall, she's she's one of my favorite new series companions. Maybe one of my favorite all time. Chip. 
What's your thought about series, series four? Um, my favorite would have to be Midnight. Um, this is it, it is such a subversive episode because it takes the it takes the Doctor and it puts him in a circumstance where there is absolutely nobody else around to tell the world how reliable and how great and how helpful the doctor is he's stuck in a bus and nobody in the bus trusts him and they almost chuck him out of the bus and kill him and he comes out of it just shattered and that is just it's powerful writing it's another one of those i think that you would have said jason where if he just came in and did an episode that would be the one who did it um it's it's russell t davis sort of stepping outside of the arc to just tell not the story that he always wanted to tell, but the story that you almost have to st- have to tell about the doctor to sort of de- to deflate the um, mystery around him or something like that. And, you know, didn't he write it just just right off the cuff? Wasn't that sort of dropped in because something else fell out of the way? And that's like that's 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 a sign of a good writer. I mean, he he just you know whipped that off. Like I, I wish he would have done something more like that for some of his uh, finales. Well, this is the, this is the thing is there's the Russell T Davis who's a really good writer, and then there's the guy who wanted to or felt the need to do the big operatic finales and all of that because he was the showrunner and that's what he felt people needed out of the arc of the series. But as a result, I feel like we did kind of get cheated out of more episodes that showcase him being who he is, which is a really, really good writer when, you know, and I say that as somebody who thinks that his continually turning up the volume on the finales kind of went way too far. But in an episode like this, Chip, I mean, obviously this is my high point too. And um, it is, I think, his best script and I would actually put make a little box of midnight and and uh, blink, and say um, I, I've I've said this before, uh, saying the Twilight Zone. It's like the, you can put these on that level of like this is an anthology. Just take the script and and run it, and it doesn't matter what show it's in, and it's just so brilliantly written and and. Um, I, I, seriously, Midnight could be a Twilight Zone episode, and I would put it there with a work of Rod Serling. It is that kind of like great. It, it would be a great play. It would be a fantastic, scary, weird play, and uh, I do think it. I do think it's brilliant. So I'm with you on Midnight. I'm Team Midnight. I think it has been staged. Actually, I think they've done that somewhere in New York. Well, it makes sense because closed route rights, the locked room uh, thing, you can do it as a play, but much more easily. Yeah, it's 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 the total bottle show episode. It's like the fly episode of Breaking Bad, only even more claustrophobic. They had to build the set, but then they just used that set. A low point for you, Chip? Uh, Doctor's Daughter. It's the only time. Um, it's the only time I've yelled at <laughs> new series Doctor Who. Yelled at the screen because what did you yell? What did you yell? I Arr. cannot repeat that. <laughs> I cannot repeat what I yelled. But the thing the thing that upsets me about that episode is that there are absolutely no surprises. Everything right everything happens um from there's just no surprise. Uh, you know that she is going to die at the end. You know that she is going to regenerate at the end. The um even even when the doctor holds the gun to the uh, general's head and uh, postures a bit, it's all hollow. It's all just bad. 
it, it, the the jumping in front of the gun. I mean, so so lazy, so cliched. The, this episode was retconned in in order for David Tennant and uh, and Georgia to get together, right? Isn't that it's it's uh, <laughs> it's a reality retcon. I think she's a lot of fun in this episode. In fact, I I think I think I think uh, Georgia Moffat and um, I would also say um, the scenes with Martha and the little bubbly half guy. I think are the only redeeming things in the entire episode. But those, those, you know, she's she's good. She's just trapped in a bad script. Yeah, and I will briefly say, uh, because I'm contractually obligated to, uh, I am a fan of the Stolen Earth and Journey's End, um, and I do like that operatic stuff. And I will say, in my defense, that uh, that it was uh, for the longest time the highest rated in terms of audience and audience appreciation of all the series it was a crowd pleaser and as a crowd as, as a part of the crowd i was pleased i recently rewatched it and i i much, liked it much better this time i i quite enjoyed it so i'm i'm on team chip when we did the family rewatch uh stolen earth journeys End, you know it's sort of silly and there's some really weird stuff in it that you're like really okay like the daleks are beaming people up to the ship for this weird test and i mean there's a lot of like shortcut of like well we look we need that to happen so this other thing could happen the only thing i hated about it was the warp star diamond right 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 but but i actually really like that too it is because i like the family reunion aspect of it it's like let's get everybody back together in fact um, you know, we're, and we're about to move on to the specials. I would say one of the things that has made me like it more is that I have seen now the next step of of operatic ending, which is the end of time. And I, it makes me wish that the that journey's end had been the end for David Tennant because it felt like the end for Russell T. Davis and David Tennant. It was literally let's bring everybody back, let's close the books. We, you know, here is the end of this story, journey's end, and now bring in the new Doctor. And instead, <laughs> we just oh, let's do it again next year for more specials jason that's exactly what i was was just thinking is that the the let's get everybody together thing kind of bothered me a little bit because it was hokey and cheesy but i'm okay with hokey and cheesy if it's this last gasp you know big ending thing so in my mind he actually did regenerate at the end of journey's end and then we had nothing else and la 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 my fingers are in my ears i can't hear you i can't hear you you can't do that you can't do that you can't turn down the waters of mars like that i know you can't well yes i can yes i can let's we'll get we'll get there we'll get there in a minute um i wanted to i wanted to say for me uh midnight obviously the high point for me although i really do like fires of pompeii and um and unicorn and the wasp is i think hilariously funny and um and and the moffat two-parter i think is really good although it does recycle things and and in true stephen moffat timey-wimey fashion pre-cycles things where he will strip mine it for things that he'll use again and again and again when he comes and runs the show um uh i didn't like it's not a low point but i didn't like turn left as much as a lot of people did um it just you know i think it's fine i think the little bug is really weird and the the, the the fortune teller character is kind of a strange and racist stereotype and um but the centauran two-parter is really bad and doctor's daughter daughter was really bad i thought so those are my losers there but boy i love midnight i'm with chip team midnight Woo! midnight sounds like twilight it's a little scary like we're fans of a vampire book or something but no it's a misanthropic uh, Twilight Zone episode that I love. Midnight is also the target for completing this on the Pacific Coast. Uh, exactly. So the specials. Let's before we go, and we are going to go. Are we the specials? Uh, we have the next Doctor 
Planet of the Dead, The Waters of Mars, and The End of Time. Um, I, I, uh, my feeling here is that um, I, too, like Erica, would dream of ending it with Journey's End. The only limitation there is I really actually love The Waters of Mars. It is one of my favorite David Tennant episodes. I love everything about it. Love it, love it, love it. I love all aspects of it. I think it's a great episode. And um, otherwise, I find nothing to commend any of these specials. So that's wow. it. Hey, oh, the very end of the end of time. The very end of the end of time. The last like you know that little brief coda at the end of time where he says goodbye to everybody that goes on for about half an hour i like that oh i hate that (laughs) the part part one of end of time the only thing i will defend i did not like any of these really actually the next doctor was sort of sweet and interesting uh and so clever what's that you have a balloon you have a balloon it was clever it was just it wasn't i don't think it was well developed but i think the uh the miss havisham no that's not her name it's um the, the character dervla kerwin is her real name mr hardigan see i can find a name i can find a name um i think she was a wonderful did a wonderful performance was a wonderful character and her arc through it was um creepy and good and had a great kaboom conclusion uh but um and what i did not like waters of mars i thought it was full of holes and just sort of I don't know. I'm not a bigger fan of the super hard ones. But here's the thing. So end of time, I think uh, when I think of end of time, I forget there's a part one and I'm looking at this and then remembering there's a part one, which I didn't. I thought which is full of nonsense and him eating people at the hamburger stand and all, you know, it's sort of crazy stuff. But they set it up. Uh-huh. No, it's a weird thing. It's like, I'm so hungry. And then there's skeletons. It's and like the super creepy rich guy and his daughter and his little thing that he's building. Oh, oh this is too much. Right. Okay, so but but part two, I thought had wonderful stuff, and I also I really I like Bernard Cribbins. I thought he was used extremely well. I uh, like the uh, you know I think it came out. Don't we know that it's actually the uh, the woman, the Claire Bloom is supposed to be the Doctor's mother? It's supposedly, but I thought her showing up and disappearing, whatever the reason, it didn't bother me. There wasn't a strict like Time Lord plot reason that came out, and they sort of said, "Oh, let me explain." It's time to explain. Let me explain this. I think there was enough holes in time, enough other things you could just say this is a thing but the, the way she addressed bernard the um the sort of confusing aspect of her i thought that was terrific and i thought it came to a great conclusion because you had that relationship between the doctor and the master which goes back for decades and which is confused at different times like the master went from being sort of this creature of pure evil sort of where the uh, jk rowling you know gets her masterful name you know, Voldemort from sort of it's like somebody who's just totally evil and his goals are sort of incomprehensible because he's often destroying the universe accidentally or on purpose like well you don't get any power if there's no universe in here it's like I thought it was much more direct I love the actor who played the master and at the end he gets to do that thing he gets to say all right I have an opportunity to sacrifice and they use that really wonderfully I think it went on too long that scene and then just that bit when Bernard knocks on the door, bop, 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 and you're like, oh, that was the payoff. That was fantastic. Chip, it's time. It's time. Go go ahead. Let me have it. My favorite episode of – my favorite special is The Waters of Mars. Oh, oh thank God. There. You, you thought I was going to say something else. I did. You? <laughs> you did. I did. You've surprised me from now till the end of time. Ah. Uh, no, The Waters of Mars is genius. Uh, RTD and Phil Ford just put together something that was gripping and scary and... And very Doctor Who, I think. Very Doctor Who and gets really into the depths of uh, the darkness, the potential for darkness inside the character. And it's the, only, it's the kind of story you can 
only tell on your way out. Um, it, it, there, there's nowhere for the character to go other than to regenerate and start over, uh, and start and start lighter. Um, so, Waters of Mars is just genius television. I think from from beginning to end. Uh, everything else in the season is light and uh, it's light and fluffy. Um, Next Doctor and Planet of the Dead. I don't hate, although I don't hate the Next Doctor more than I hate. <laughs> Wait a minute. Parsing difficulties. David Morrissey is is always fun to watch and is fun to watch in the Next Doctor. Yes, yes. Uh, I, yeah, that's fun. Next Doctor is fun. Planet of the Dead is somewhat less fun, although I don't hate Michelle Ryan as much as some people do. As for the end of time, I have a reputation among my friends and among the <laughs> Doctor Who podcasting community in general um, as uh, the big defender of the end of time. And my point – I'm not so much defending the end of time as I am standing against just irrational hatred of of the two-parter. Uh, it is not perfect. Um, the part, part Part one is a mess, but I think part two works more than it doesn't work. It's um, I, I, I would agree with you that journeys stolen earth and journeys end are better than the end of time. But the things that I like about the end of time is, are the fact that the doctor doesn't want to go. The doctor rails against it. It's entirely consistent with the way that the doctor has been portrayed by David Tennant as being too attached to who he is and what he does. And even though that may seem undoctorish and venal and whining of him i do like to see him struggling against what he wants to do and what he must do and i think that that makes his sacrifice to wilf more believable and um and the best thing about the end of time is post-regeneration the happy Bouncing music, <laughs> Matt Smith just being light and fluffy and glorious. It's and spitting, it's, and spitting, <laughs> and it's it's. Russell T. Davies did the best thing possible. He writes the David Tennant regenerates scenes and then hands the script over to Moffat and says, "You go." And Moffat does the perfect thing, which is, "We've had a lot of angst. Now let's have some fun. Let's get you excited about seeing this new guy." Erica. What do you think of the specials? Um, <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't joking when I said I, I like to just pretend that Journey's End was was it. <laughs> um, I I do agree that Waters of Mars is 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 excellent in in many ways. Um, Phil Ford is is awesome, and uh, but honestly, I think I liked Phil Ford's stuff on the Sarah Jane Adventures a little bit better than this, and probably just because it's <laughs> the audience, it's lighter. Yeah, it's yes, yes, yeah, a little bit lighter than everybody dying, and yeah. And the people who are saved or, or shouldn't have been saved and one of them kills himself and yeah. Yeah, and that I mean that the, the whole suicide thing was that was that was definitely way too much for me. Um and way too much for, for tea time television, I thought. Yeah, I agree. I think the ending is I, I guess I, I get it in the story arc, but that's not why I love it. That ending is not why I love it. I love everything. You like the ood appearing suddenly. Yeah. Yeah. Sudden ood appearances may be prevented through proper use of time. I like the burden of we've seen all, the whole premise of Waters of Mars, right, is is the doctor said, I can't change everything because, you know, of time and and uh, there are fixed points. And he re- he reaches a point where he's at this base with these people who, who died. They all died. 
and he struggles with the idea of you know, I, he says, I got to get out of here and he gets to know them and he gets in the adventure and then he has to remind himself, these people all die. And then, yes, he makes the decision, I'm going to screw it. I'm going to save them and we'll just see what happens. And it has horrible consequences. But I like that because that, that's it's hard for the show to, to go that far. And like Chip said, you kind of have to be heading out the door before you can do that. But I think just once to say what happens when the doctor re- is in the no win scenario and, uh, and then he's, and he decides to cheat. It's very Captain Kirk actually <laughs> decides to cheat at the no win scenario. But yeah, I do. I, I still would like to pretend journey's in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yes, the waters of Mars is, is good. And I, I find it hard to say anything bad about uh, Phil Ford because he's a nice guy. I can't remember if I hugged him, but we did have tequila together. So there was that. I shook his hand. TV's Phil Ford. Yeah. He's wonderful. He's just great. But I think I would still throw his script here under the bus. Um, if <laughs> is it is it a is it a smash double decker bus in the sand? Yeah, exactly. That is that is the bus that I would toss it under. If I could, if I could also get rid of all three of the other specials uh, at the same time. That's that's the caveat there. And yes, I'm I'm on record as as not liking the end of time simply because I love David Tennant so much. He was just I was crushed when he was going to leave, and I didn't like the way that that RTD sent him out. It it, it turned him whiny at the end, and I just. It, that really grated on me as as somebody who really loves the show in all of its changes. And I do like being sad when the doctor leaves, but I, I like being sad and knowing that the doctor is okay with it. That gives me sort of a, a sense of, of balance and that everything is right with the universe. And when the doctor's not okay with it, that just that does something to me on a very deep emotional level that I'm, I'm not all right with. Oh, the, the the I don't want to go. Although I think chosen because that's Russell Davis. Like that's it. That's my last line. I'm gonna give that. Uh, I the the moment it doesn't really match what I think is maybe the best line in the whole show, which is "Live too long," right? Where he where he mm-hmm. has his raving. Um, uh, egomaniacal. I'm more important than anybody. I should live forever. Nobody, it, nobody else's life is more important than mine. And and then has that moment where he's like, "Oh yeah, I've gone way too far. I, I, this is this. I'm out of control here." And that that's a wonderful moment where he says, "No, I need to do this. I need to sacrifice myself for wealth. This is what the doctor does." Um, it's just ca- counter you know, acted a little bit by, I don't want to go at the end. It's like, that's why you're going. <laughs> that's exactly why you are. I have to go. <laughs> I think after the fact, finding out what RTD's original idea had been um, for, for Tennant's last, last episode, uh, that it was, it was going to be his, his original idea was going to be something much more on a smaller scale, like saving a family on a spaceship, something very small and intimate. And it would have hit me where I lived, and that would have just done it right for me. And then the story is, and I don't know if this is true, but that John Sim said, hey, you know, I'd, I'd like to be involved. So he had to rewrite it to add the master, and that's sort of where everything spiraled into this, you know, giant saving the universe. You could say it comes back the Paul McGann a uh, little uh, short is he cares enough to save this one person who doesn't want to be saved and he allows himself to die. And he's ready to die then because of the time war. But it, that's that little bit. I actually was surprised when I watched it. That was the most surprising thing was this is what the doctor does, but people always take his help and he always succeeds and th- she refused to take his help. And I, so I think there may be a little bit of an echo of that in there. Saving one person and dying for her. Yeah, and I I appreciate that that he at least made it intimate in the fact that you know he it, 
ultimately sacrifices himself to save Wilf, who is one kind person. I just didn't, I didn't like the rant, the rantiness that had to happen beforehand. <laughs> um, that was that, that was just went, it, it was like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. It, it hurt to watch. Oh, but I think that's, I think that was the thing. I think it was supposed to. I think the doctor is so, you know, we accept that people are not as selfless. This is the thing. I did this radio interview once about, I can't remember why it came up, but it was about, it was about Doctor Who. And I was always thinking the doctor runs into dangerous, the doctor runs into danger. That's the thing. He's, you know, it's like a fireman. And there's the the flip side of it. I was talking to a woman who writes about uh, psychological stuff. And we were talking about the flip side of the psychopath and the hero. Those are two sides in literature, in the psychological literature of the same thing, which I didn't realize is that the selfless hero is a rule breaker. They don't conform to conventions, but we uh, admire them. We don't admire the psychopath because they seem to do something that is positive by, through self-sacrifice and breaking rules. And the doctor is that psychopath, but he's a psychopath for us. And we've got to see a little bit of the flip side of that in the episode where he rants about his own needs for once, you know, wanting recognition, all that. And then he got under control and said, okay, you know, okay, wow, that was too much. And it's fine. <laughs> well, and that's another hallmark of the Russell T. Davis era as far as the doctor is concerned uh, both uh, Eccleston and to a greater extent Tennant's doctors they are more human than classic Doctor Who tended to serve up and that's that's something that I think has changed significantly since Stephen Moffat took over Um, and I think that that is Something that makes Russell Davis's Doctor Who idiosyncratic. Uh, I like it, um, and I I enjoy his episodes more than I enjoy Moffat's episodes, and that perhaps makes me uh, not as real a Doctor Who fan as a guy with a podcast <laughs> ought to be. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> no, I think I think Chip. I think I. I completely agree that that his doctors are more human and it is idiosyncratic. And while I don't like watching that style of doctor as much as I like the alien doctor, I still really enjoyed it. And I wouldn't have it any other way because I think if if he had tried to start off with a really alien doctor, I honestly don't know if the show would have survived. I I think that everything that RTD did was with the intent of bringing in new audiences and getting people to watch and enjoy the show. And he succeeded. And I will you know bow down and kiss his feet if I for meet him because he did such a great job that we now have this show it's still going that is a perfect way to bring this around and end this episode because i think when we look at the legacy of of the russell t davis era i mean we can quibble about uh some of his choices and his operatic endings and maybe the specials year was um miscalculated although i think even then his idea was that he didn't want it to go off the air for even a moment he wanted to keep it going i think and i think that was it i think he calculated um sometimes to individual episodes detriment perhaps uh ways to make the show successful because he really wanted it to be successful and and maybe some of the choices that we look back on are like why did that happen was was for that reason and i think you i think you nailed it that one of the reasons these doctors are how they are is they didn't have the luxury of making him tom baker staring off into the distance and saying i walk in eternity right they needed people to really attach to these people because he was he wanted ratings he wanted doctor who to be reestablished in people's minds so that it wouldn't go away again and he succeeded 
And and so even though we can quibble about some of the details, I think there's no doubt about the fact that he succeeded at what his mission was, which was to firmly establish this show and have it be a modern show and take something that was considered by a lot of people in British uh, t- television and in the UK in general to be kind of a laughing stock because of its sort of sadder, lower rated, cheap budget latter years in the 80s. Um, rightly or wrongly, but seen as kind of a a joke and a dead property and firmly reestablish it as a cornerstone of British pop culture and uh, job done. He, he did it. And that, that I think if you have to say anything about this era, it's that is he was the man tasked to bring it back. He made a lot of very interesting, not always obvious decisions and it paid off because Dr. Who is here and is firmly established in a way that it's hard to even imagine in from the vantage point of like the year 2000. Yeah, and I'm I'm completely glad despite any criticism I have any individual episodes or anything it's like on the whole um it's great there are some terrific episodes even some of the except for the really worst ones I <laughs> I still watch them all. I mean there were some terrible ones the doctor's daughter whatever but I watched them all and I got something out of uh, you know out of all of them even if it was a little bit even the Suntaran episodes Erica and uh <laughs> Tennis ball, hit that tennis ball against the back of his neck. Um, and uh, but he did. I think you're totally, totally right. And he created an enjoyable show. It was ripping and um, gripping, ripping, gripping, and full of that kind and of flipping, like horror. That the I'm not a big fan of horror genre. I like suspense, maybe a little bit, but horror I don't like. Doctor Who is right on the edge of the kind of horror that I can actually appreciate it. And I think more so because of the more. Uh, the better CG and realism and everything else, or the appearance of CG at all, <laughs> realism and and just the cinema. I think even the cinemata- cinematographic approach and the mise en scene and so forth. They they are more effective at conveying horror than the um, earlier seasons, which were because of the bit of tattiness of the set come across as as more fun. Even when horror is going on, it's kind of dun dun dun. And the new one are more like horror films. And so even with that, I could enjoy it. And it just, so he created a great, he created a great run. And he set the stage. He did a great job. Yeah, the if you compare it to the Moffat era, and boy, there's 90 podcasts you could do about that, right? And there are 90 different podcasts out there re- releasing weekly episodes to comparing the two eras. So just look for those on iTunes. Uh, the um, uh, I would say um, the big differences for me are, yeah, the portrayal of the Doctor is different. The, uh, the approach to the scripts is different. As we mentioned earlier, Stephen Moffat doesn't do cover-to-cover rewrites. And I think sometimes that allows different quirky voices to come out and i think other times it shows that they needed more work <laughs> and uh you know you so it's a little more variable in that in in good and bad ways uh what i will say about the stephen moffat era is that i don't know what they did when they changed production teams but the look of the show is much better in the in the moffat oh era God. michael pickwood the production yeah the production design. the production design the uh, the the cinema the, the cinematography the the not just that they went to hd but the the way it's shot it is shot like a movie Every week, in, and and it, you see it in the first frames of the eleventh hour. It's like hard to believe it's the same show, and that's the only way I'd say that that it feels really dated to me. Looking at the at the Russell T Davis era, is that it feels like a um, a TV show, and the Moffat era feels like a movie to me. And yeah. uh, that's I, hard to quantify, but I think there's something there. But script wise, it's kind of all over the place in the in the Moffat era. And yeah, all, although the Moffat era is just as guilty as the Davis era for ending with universe ending. <laughs> yes, it is. Mm-hmm. I think every single every single it's a straight line from series one all the way up to the um, to uh, the time of the Doctor. The stakes have gotten bigger every single time, literally. 
yeah, saving the world or saving the universe has has been um, or, or all of time itself, or all of time itself, all universes everywhere. Yes, I would really like one of those one of those kind of quiet emotional stakes where it's about the people and not about everything in the entire. Universe. We are we are so far away from the possibility of Peter Capaldi even uh, for his last episode, whenever that is, of him dying trying to save one family on a spaceship yeah. somewhere I, I will say end of time that was the funniest thing was like when uh when you have rassilon say we're going to destroy the entire concept of time and causation and, exi- and it's like this is getting pretty abstract like so wait <laughs> how is that gonna work if there's no i'll, ex- all right, I'll I'm explain not sure later I follow you but what's that? i'll explain later <laughs> i'll explain later it was, but it, was a, it was a wonderfully abstract and really weird like philosophy phd sort of idea we're just gonna get rid of causation and matter and it'll be great for us not for you guys of course not for you guys but for us forever but there is no forever because time's dead in the spirit of russell t davis commentary tracks on the dvd sets hooray we've reached the end (laughs) (laughs) hooray uh, I would like to thank my guests for for talking about watching Doctor Who that happened like eight hours ago when we started, and then about the Russell T. Davis era, which was a lot, admittedly, to to, to bite off. But I wanted to do it at one go, and we did it. We did it. We can do this again with uh, with the Matt Smith era sometime. And it's like the it's like the Cliff Notes version. Yeah. Get us all back again once more. You know the time loop. It's a chronic hysteresis. Yeah, sure. And and we've still got another month and a half before uh, Peter Cabaldi, so it's coming. He's a coming. Uh, I would like to thank my guests for once again geeking out about Doctor Who. It is a joy. Chip Sutterth, Two Minute Time Lord, Audio Guide to Babylon 5. Uh, you got any other podcasts or is that enough for your life? That's enough for now, <laughs> yeah. but it has been an absolute pleasure to share this episode of the Two Hour Time Lord with you. <laughs> That's right. Thanks for having me on, Chip. I really appreciate it. Erica Ensign, thank you so much for being back. And uh, and I feel like this is where we get you back to square one. It's like we talk about all these other things with you and then it's like back to Dr. Who. Just for yeah, a moment. This is, this is where I shine. This is, you know, if we are caught in a chronic hysteresis, all you have to do is just waggle his tail. Yeah. Erica, what is it like to be into other stuff than Dr. Who? <laughs> it's it's I'll, exhausting. I'll, I'll explain later. <laughs> and Glenn Fleischman, of course. You may know Glenn. Um, something funny that you might not know about Glenn is Glenn's aunt once shared a train compartment with Tom Baker's mailman. No, no, no. But my mother, she <laughs> oh, no. uh, ran into Rob uh, Reiner when he was making Stand By Me, which I was almost cast in. And uh, she asked why I wasn't cast in the movie. And he said, well, I don't really talk about casting. Good story. <laughs> well, it's, it's thank you for being here again, talking about Doctor Who. Thanks for taking me to the future. Yeah, sure. Or the pa- or is it the past? It's a celebrity historical, but who's the celebrity? Hmm. All right, and thanks to everybody out there for listening. We hope that we've given you some thoughts about Doctor Who that you can take away and maybe start watching it, or uh, you can just yell at your phone about our terrible opinions that you disagree with. You know, that's what podcasts are for. Uh, until next time on The Incomparable, this is Jason Snell signing off. Bye. Bye.